This evening, we're going to read from Romans uh, chapter 8, verses 35 through 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, I always enjoy the opportunity to be able to uh, speak to you guys. And this is a really interesting kind of angle to come from for us to be able to kind of talk about our life verses. Because as ministers, there's certain kind of uh, circles that we have a, a, a tendency to kind of interact with. And it's a really cool way for maybe some of you guys that aren't quite as much in my circle to maybe get to know me a little bit better. And so, you know, I, I hope I can kind of share some of who I am through what we're talking about today. But I kind of have a confession to make. Uh, I was kind of a deer in the headlights when Randy was like, hey, we're going to talk about our life verse. Because I don't really feel like I've got a kind of life verse, so to speak. One of the questions that I have a hard time with is when somebody asks me what my favorite book is. I absolutely love to read. I read quite, quite a few different kinds of things. But man, when somebody says, what's your favorite book? I'm like, my favorite book for if I'm sitting on an airplane for six hours, or the book that like impacted me and changed my perspective on the world, or the book that the classic literature that I enjoy the most, or you know, th there's kind of different subcategories, and so I kind of I kind of get vapor lock when somebody's like, "What's your what's your favorite book?" And it's the same thing when somebody's like, "What scripture has impacted you the most? What's your life verse?" I'm kind of like, "Wow." I don't know. When I, when I look at Scripture, there are certain things that I read that have this sense of comfort, this sense of just God wrapping his arms around me and, and making me feel like things are okay and that everything's going to be all right. And then there's, there's other passages that I read, and, and when I come across them, man, they kind of do the opposite thing to where I'm like, I think, feel like God's kind of stepping on my toes a little bit and saying, hey, it's time to get out of your comfort zone, or you need to change this, or you need to look at the world in this way instead. There's, there's certain passages that you read, and even without the depth of meaning that they have, there is a prose and a poetry and a, lira, a, a literary value to them that are, that are just beautiful at face value. There are other statements that we see in Scripture, other verses and passages, that are so powerful and impactful that they change the course of human history. They impact what it means to have a relationship with your, your creator. And so when I hear this concept of like, what is your life verse, I'm kind of overwhelmed by that. But I did want to talk about something that I feel like I am kind of connected to, a, a thing that maybe I'm called to, but I don't really like that term of calling, because, you know, when we talk about kind of the traditional idea of calling, somebody goes along, God kind of slaps them in the face and says, here's the job you're supposed to do, do that till you're dead. And like, you know, I, I don't really buy into that too much. I feel like as Christians, we all have certain things that we're all called to. We are all supposed to do those things. And a lot of times, over the course of our life, that changes. There are certain things that uh, I feel really connected to when, when somebody's 16, that maybe when they're 36, it's a really different animal. And when they're 66, they may be engaged in something else completely. But they're all ministries. They're all things that, that ways that God is using them. 
Uh, also, I think we're called to a lot of things at the same time. So I really feel like God has called me as a parent to uh, communicate to my children his word and to raise them in faith. But I also feel really connected to his vision for me, trying to uh, help young adults and build relationships in, in that place as well. But I did want to pick one thing that really resonates with me. I've been a counselor for a little more than 10 years. And over that time, I've really connected with this concept of walking with people through their hurt. And sometimes that's little stuff. Sometimes it's just small things that aren't super uh, significant. And sometimes it is really big, impactful, challenging stuff. And I feel like one of the things that God has kind of put on my heart is to help people walk through those challenges. And that brings us to the verse. We already looked at it once tonight, but I want to read it again for us. Romans 8.35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Let's hit that one more time. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels or demons, neither present or future or any powers, neither height nor depth or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ our Lord. A powerful verse acknowledging the hurt and difficulty in the world and the challenges that we face, but also talking about the awesome story and resolution that can come through that. But there's one word that I kind of want to connect to here, and that's this concept of conqueror. I don't know what comes into your mind when you hear the word conqueror, um, but for me, there's one name that kind of rises to the top. When I think of conqueror, the name that comes into my mind is Alexander the Great. I'm sure you guys probably know the story of Alexander the Great and kind of what he did in history. Uh, I believe he came onto the, uh, came, became king in, I think, 336 B.C. until 323 B.C., so not a huge time. But in the time that he was king, he basically took over the known world. There were a couple little pockets that he didn't. But for the most part, he expanded his empire to control most of the world that he knew. Um, there's one story that for me really kind of sums up who he is. And it's just kind of a legend. I, we, I don't want to debate on whether it's true or not, but you know, a lot of times with these characters, we get these myths and stories. It's the story of the Gordian Knot. Some of you guys probably know it. There was this legend that this knot had been uh, tied and formed, and whoever could untie it would be the king of Asia and this amazing conqueror, and you know, just it was supposed to kind of foretell who was going to be this amazing ruler. And so when he was young, uh, Alexander the Great was given the opportunity to untie the Gordian knot. So he goes out there and he tries, he, he, he messes with it, he tries to kind of pull on an end here and goes through the same experience that everybody else had had with it, was unsuccessful. So he sat back and looked at it and he took out his sword and in one swipe, hacked it in half. It's undone. He had got a little bit outside the box. He solved it with a sword. When I think of a conqueror, 
That's what I think of. Somebody who exerts their will. Someone who is powerful. Someone who is going to make what they want to have happen, happen. Alexander the Great was a genius in many ways. We still use some of his military strategy. Uh, He was charismatic, and he was ruthless. Some of the stories that we hear about him of even putting to death people who are very close to him were absolutely, I mean, he, he's, he was kind of a bad guy in a lot of ways. And when I think about what I want to be, that version of conqueror ain't it. That's not what I want to be. That's not what I want to be. I want to look at this idea of being more than a conqueror. I've thought about two different ways that it's easy for us to feel conquered in today's world. One, it's easy to feel conquered by just the brokenness that exists in today's world. There's a lot of pain out there. There's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of heartbreak. The devil, sadly, is alive and well in our world. Sin exists. There's a lot of challenges. Part of my story in interacting with that was my first job out of college was working for Child Protective Services, working for child welfare. I grew up in pretty middle-class, kind of suburban sort of world, went to OC and lived in the OC bubble, whatever that is, and graduated, stepped out, and my first job was kind of in the hood. Um, My job was to do investigations on uh, uh, families that had been reported for child abuse and neglect. And then another part of my job was working with families who had had a child removed to try to reunify those people. This really caught my attention. My eyes were opened in a lot of ways. I saw things and heard stories that were difficult for me to get my head around. It was a challenging time because I knew there was hurt in the world. I'd seen bad things happen. You know, I I was aware of parts of the world where things were really terrible. But in this time, I had a relationship with these people. Even the adults so often, drugs and alcohol were a part of these stories, and even they had some, of some really tragic stories. I remember at one point holding a, a child that was two years old and realizing that this child had been through more difficulty in their two years than I had in my 20-something. They had seen hurt. It really changed the way that I interacted and thought about hurt and suffering in the world. And, you know, a lot of times when we have challenges, when we have um, difficulties, one of the first questions that we ask is, God, why me? Why did my family member have to die? Why did I have to get sick? Why did I have to lose my job? Why me, God? But I kind of had the opposite experience. And please don't let me hear, please don't hear me uh, being really judgmental about that. I think that's a really natural thing to kind of go through, uh, a natural process to walk through when bad things happen. But when I experienced all these things secondhand, my first question is, God, why not me? I didn't do anything to be born where I was born. These kids had zero guilt, no culpability in the negative things that had happened to them. God, why not me? I want you to hold on to that. We're going to come back to it in a few minutes. The next part of this conquered concept It's easy to be conquered by the world's brokenness, but it's also easy to be conquered by our own brokenness. Because we have to admit that we are imperfect people. I've gone back and forth as to whether or not I should share this part or not. But um, 
but I'm gonna. I want to. I want to be vulnerable with you guys and be honest. So, right as I was finishing graduate school, um, my grandfather passed away from Parkinson's. He struggled for a long time with it, and it was really difficult for me to watch because, in my mind, my grandfather was the absolute pinnacle of masculinity, manhood. He was the kind of guy that could uh, fix an engine, teach you how to throw a right cross. He was a football player in, in school, and um, you know, he was really charismatic. He was a really amazing guy. I thought a whole lot of him, and I felt like I had a really close relationship with him. And during those years, I watched him go from this person who was, again, my puristic of what it was to be a man, to broken. Broken in his body, broken in his mind, and that was a hard thing to watch. And when he finally passed away, it was a struggle. But I kind of walked that road and dealt with kind of the grief that went along with that. But to be honest, I didn't quite make it all completely out of that. And after a while, I realized that I'd kind of isolated myself from people a little bit, that uh, I wasn't as engaged with the world as I had been at one point. And I realized after some time that I was struggling with my own depression. It was something that I fought with, something that I walked through. And it's scary to admit that to a room full of people, especially as somebody that's supposed to be a counselor and I was supposed to have this all figured out. Not supposed to happen to me, right? So I navigated this piece, and then with people who loved me, people who cared about me, uh, getting involved with the resources that I had, I was able to walk through that. That is not where I am anymore. Um, that that's, was many years ago, and at this point, I, I, I feel like I'm in a really different place in my world and in my life. And I share that because I want to let you know that this talk about difficulty and challenges is not something that's purely academic. This isn't theoretical. This isn't somebody from the, from the outside looking in. There's a lot of people who've had a lot worse struggles, but I do feel like that it's something that I have walked in some way. When I think of somebody as an example that walked from absolutely being conquered and dominated to being more than a conqueror, the story that comes to mind for me is the story of Joseph. We get this picture of a young man, Genesis 37 through 43. If you haven't read it, read it in a while, man, take a look at it. It's a really amazing story, and it really is impactful. But when I, when I think of somebody that walked this road, He's a young man, maybe a little arrogant, maybe said some things he shouldn't say, maybe a little ambitious. Does that sound like any of us as an adolescent? Maybe, a little bit. But hopefully we had families that were, kind of helped us navigate that. We look at Joseph's family, and we see brothers that were not able to help him walk through that. We see guys that were hateful and ended up um, acting like they were going to kill him and selling him into slavery. And we read this idea of him being sold into slavery to these foreign traders, and we kind of, okay, yeah, that happened, and we move on with life. I want you to take that for just a second and, and, and stew on it. He was sold into slavery by his brothers. The people that are supposed to have your back, the people that are supposed to be the embodiment of loyalty, the guys on your team, those were the guys that sold him into slavery. He didn't have any autonomy. He didn't have any control of his world. He was told when to wake up and what to do, at least for a time period. I can't imagine that Joseph didn't wake up every morning 
and fight with this desire to be resentful. I can't imagine that he didn't have an invitation to store up anger and look for vengeance. But that is not the story that we read of Joseph. The story that we read of Joseph is a man who kept his focus on God, who kept his vision on his creator and on the person that he had, and this, this God that he had a relationship with. And man, we see him go up and down, these struggles, hope. He ends up in a spot where it looks really hopeful, and then things kind of fall out from under him. And, you know, we see this journey of Joseph. But at the end, we see God elevate him to the number two guy in the empire of Egypt. He is the second most powerful guy right under the Pharaoh Pharaoh, uh, in Egypt. And guess who shows up? His brothers. I don't know about you, how you would have handled that situation. I'm pretty sure if uh, Alexander the Great had been in that situation, those brothers would have been done at that point. But again, that's not Joseph. Yeah, he kind of messes with them a little bit. But in the long run, Joseph is a guy that embraces him. He brings them back into his family. He brings them into his home. When I look at what it means to be more than a conqueror, that's what I see. A conqueror exerts his will over somebody. More than a conqueror embodies God's will for the people around them. That's a really powerful thing to, uh, to think about and look at couple of things that I want to touch base on as we, as we move forward in this. If you are in that spot where you're looking at the brokenness of the world and feeling a little, feeling a little overwhelmed by it, not sure what to do with that, then I want to kind of rewind and talk about my response of why not me, God. Because I really struggled with that for a little bit, and then I came across Luke 12, 48. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much will be asked. I think the parable of the uh, talents communicates this as well. But if you're in a situation where you haven't had to fight these battles, where you've been given a lot of opportunities, the only way I could get my head around that is that God asks a lot of me. That he expects me to be engaged and to look for ways to uh, be involved in his kingdom to look for ways to help people who are hurting and to help them navigate that. If you're in a spot where you feel overwhelmed by your own brokenness, then I want to uh, bring up 2 Corinthians 12, 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. We have grace. God doesn't say that the only way to be with him is perfection. What he says is that Christ's blood is the way that we are with him. He has made a way. He has made a path for us. We know the world is a broken place. But there's a really cool second part to that story, and that is God's love for us. He is going to make a path for us. God is has done what he needs to do so that we can be with him even through that brokenness. There's a story that I love that I think kind of embodies this concept. The end of the Vietnam War, 1975, the Americans are pulling out of Saigon. 
the North Vietnamese are, are, are closing back in on, on the, the city of Saigon. As they move across the country, they have been very terrible. They have been cruel and, and done terrible things to people. And so all these guys that have been allied with the Americans and have done, you know, have helped the American forces throughout this war are doing all they can to get out of Saigon because they don't want to be there when the, when the North Vietnamese get there. For a lot of these guys, it was easier for them to get the paperwork on all the pieces that they needed for them to get out of the city, but it was a little harder for their families. There was a man, and I'm going to try to say his name because I want to acknowledge him. Van Goyen, I believe. I don't know Vietnamese. If you do, I apologize. He had a wife and uh, three children, a a one-year-old daughter being the youngest, and he had no way to get them out. He was a flight instructor for the South Vietnamese military. And so he decided that he was going to use whatever resource he had at his disposal. He he, He woke his wife up one morning and said, today's the day. I want you to get ready. Get the kids ready to go. Pack up a little bit of whatever you can. Get ready. We're leaving today. And then he left. So just wait for me. I'll be right back. He snuck onto the military base and stole a Chinook helicopter. I don't know if you're familiar with a Chinook helicopter, but they are massive. They're the two rotor ones. You see them used to uh, move heavy machinery a lot. A gigantic helicopter. He takes this thing back home and lands it at his house and he puts his family on it. And basically all of his friends and neighbors and whoever they can get on this thing, they, they, they load it up. They pack up this helicopter and he takes off. He speaks no English, so he can't really communicate to the American forces on where to go to, to get out. So he just heads for the bay because he knows that there's American battleships out there. So he cruises out to the bay, and he, he finds the USS Kirk. It's a big ship, but it's not big enough to land a, a Chinook helicopter on. So he kind of leans out the window and through rudimentary sign language lets the guys know what he's going to try to do. And he hovers 12 to 15 feet above the uh, battleship that's uh, bobbing up and down on the, on the waves. And one by one, his friends and family jump out of the helicopter into the arms of the American servicemen there. At one point, he has to drop his one-year-old daughter out of the helicopter into the hands of a stranger. So now his his friends and family are taken care of, but what about him? He doesn't doesn't have any options at this point. So he flies out a little bit further out into the, uh, the water, and he gets ready and he jumps out as he crashes this helicopter into the water and dives down as deep as he can go because when this thing hits, it just throws stuff everywhere and just shrapnel going all over the place. He ends up making it up unharmed, is taken onto the boat, and uh, lived in Washington State working for an uh, aircraft company for most of his life. That one-year-old daughter is a physician in the Pacific Northwest right now. An amazing story of a guy that is going to do whatever he can to take care of his children. We have a God that is going to do whatever he can to take care of his children. There's there's challenges, there's difficulty, there's hurt, there's pain, there's struggle in the world. But our God says, there's nothing that's going to remove my love from you. When we look at the last piece of this passage, we see that God says it's not possible I'm always going to love you. Now, we can decide whether we're going to engage with that love 
We can decide whether we're going to have a relationship with our God or not, but that love is always going to be present. He's always going to care for us and want us to be in a relationship with him. When we acknowledge that there is a life after this one, then everything changes in this dynamic as well. Everything doesn't have to get back to even. Everything doesn't have to be fair because we understand that there's something waiting on the other side that's even bigger, that's, that's eternal. There's a hope for us there. If you were in a spot where you're walking through a really challenging time, where you're walking through hurt, I guarantee it's easier to do with a church family. And so, in that, I invite you to come down front and let us help you through that. If you were in a spot where you have not engaged with God's love, if you don't have a relationship with him and you want to, then I also invite you to come down front uh, to join him and us in that as we stand and sing.